Hello and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I'm your host Jeff, better known as Brendan Fish, and I'm your other host Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 95th episode of the Nauticast titled "Winter Nights: An Analysis of a Clash of Kings, John 3, in which, well, as the saying goes, with friends like these, who needs enemies? Talk about an awkward family gathering, am I right? Uh, but psh. Sometimes you just you just gotta laugh through the pain. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our hand of the king, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J, Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O, Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin. Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warn of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, the Blue Ringed Octoling, Lord Jake, Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valerian, Heretical Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Warden of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Canoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soyboy of Summerhall, and Defender of the Fifth, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer of Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie of the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Penchant for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the Day Des, and Gentle Thames, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving as a Spy for Several Unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council, and our four, oh my god, four newest members of the Small Council, Haldiver, the Waiter for Tiwau, A.A. Ron, Damp Hair, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, and finally, Veneris of House Colgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overwork, the Queen of Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender of Paints, and Maker of Drawings. Wow. She has been promoted from being a high lady to a small council members. So thank you, counselors, very much, and welcome to our four. Again, four. That's amazing. Newest members of the small council. Thank you so much to all our counselors, especially the new ones. I'm so glad to see Vanessa there, to see that the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive small council continues. <laughs> I'm going to miss saying Vanessa's list of titles, though. It's unfair that Jeff has stolen them from me. <laughs> well, at some point, we'll have one of those things where you will be doing the synopsis. I'll be doing the depth section of it. And you'll get to say the titles all over again. So it's going to be just like old times for you. I look forward to it. <laughs> Me too. So our spoiler wink, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Sir Hunding, wannabe master of guest rate, a sworn sword patron, asks our question for this week. What is the thematic purpose of Val to the story? Being clad all in white with a weirwood brooch is a classic look closely here signal from George, which hasn't paid off yet and things not quite fitting together smells of an upcoming reveal. She says, my lord, instead of my lord, which we've been taught means she's highborn. She is called the wildling princess, but even by Westerosi standards, the sibling of a king's consort is not a princess, else Tyrion would be a prince. Title pedant Stannis goes along with this. Does he know something we don't? You said young Griff's purpose is to contrast with John's secret prince plotline, but John and Griff's princedom is both tangibly matter? An unexplored contrast is the secret princess who doesn't matter. Could Val be this angle, e.g. via legitimized Bloodraven? 
Could a thematically satisfying John Val endgame romance emerge from their shared superhero secret identities, building on the egret groundwork? And yeah, that's a great question. Val is a complex and ambiguous character, and I think it's difficult to tell exactly what George is doing with her, given her sudden prominence in A Dance with Dragons. There's a number of directions that you could take her character in. I lean in one since the conclusion of season eight of Game of Thrones, but I'm curious to hear what Jeff has to say. I think something that's interesting that I, I was doing a little re- bit of research on this, that we know that Mance Raider came upon Dala, Val's sister, was he was coming north after being at Winterfell. Is there a possibility that Val and Dala come from someplace like, I don't know, like uh, like the last hearth or something north of Winterfell, and that's why they have things that are seemingly not in keeping with wildling tradition. Is that what's going on here? I think that's a that's a possibility. Is she highborn? Maybe, maybe she's a bastard of the Umbers or something like that. She's called a wildling princess by Stannis. I think that is more Stannis again, constantly misidentifying like the the royal structure of the wildlings and like the kind of noble structure of the wildlings. Now you tell me, what is the satisfi- thematically satisfying John Val Jean Endgame romance that's going to emerge at the end of A Song of Ice and Fire? Ever since uh, season eight with Game of Thrones ended with Jon going into exile among the wildlings, I've wondered if in the books he is going to have that fate, but with Val at his side. She is not a character who exists in the show, of course, but Jon and Val have something of a romantic subtext built between them in A Dance with Dragons. Yet unlike Danny and Dario in the same book, it's never consummated, which suggests to me maybe it's being put on ice, so to speak, for later. Ah. I can understand why that wouldn't necessarily work in the show, because there was really never any time or inclination to build up a character like Val, so it might have come off as very, here's your consolation prize, John. Her name <laughs> is Val. And I can understand why that would seem a little forced. But I, I, think, I like the John-Val relationship in dance. Val is, you know, heavily connected to wildling culture in a way that makes me think she's probably not originally a northerner. Like, she has such disdain for the kneelers in Salisa's camp. This doesn't seem like a recent affectation to me. This seems like something, a culture she's part of. The whole princess identity, that could just be yeah, Stannis and Selyse hilariously misunderstanding how the wildlings <laughs> even work. But you, you you also see like Selyse saying Raymond Redbeard is the real royal line and that they're going to run the wildlings under him. So maybe the whole princess thing they're putting on Val is more a way of transitioning her into northern identity because Stannis has talked about like maybe my lord of Winterfell will marry her and that's how we'll bring wildlings north together. So maybe he's calling Val a princess. Maybe that's his way of trying to bridge the gap. I do think it's possible that Val and Dala came come from an important wildling family. Hmm. Like Osha, Osha talks about culture in her part of uh, Beyond the Wall being transmitted matrilineally. Like my mother was there and her mother before her. That's how she talks about it. Maybe Val and Dala are connected to that. Maybe Mance married in to like a, a relatively well-to-do wildling family or like, you know, a politically or magically powerful one. Maybe that was one of his moves in order to gain control of it. And that's why Val matters. There definitely is a, a sense of imminence with her character as Sir Hunting says a sense of look closely here that hasn't paid off yet so whether that's a reveal something horrible to do with Shireen as you say that's there's that's build up whether she's involved in that sacrifice somehow or whether it's involved in John's character she seems like a character that George had a a, a relatively recent I- new idea of what to do with her character and she does she was very background in the storm of swords I get the feeling that whatever George is coming up with for Val it's a relatively late edition which means it could fall apart but it also <laughs> means it could be really interesting it could be something he sees upon as like yes I have to have this which that to me leans towards John Endgame maybe he thought I have to you know I want to have John to develop a relationship with a specific wildling so when he returns to the wildlings there is some sense of meaning and a hope in a future maybe maybe well, here's an idea. So I, I did read about read this in in a dance with, in a dance with dragons right before Val's about to depart north of the wall. Ghost pads up to her, and so you have this idea that maybe Val is going to be responsible for preserving ghosts and ghost life, and maybe that and and, and if John is living in ghosts, as we often think, 
that could be one way of doing it. Um, that that ghost would survive, right? Because I can't imagine that the mutineers of uh, of Bowen and his ilk are necessarily going to want John Steyrwolf to end up being being around. So Val could be the one who preserves Ghost as well. And then we also have Val's relationship with Monster, the uh, the son uh, of of Gilly, as we're going to find out in this chapter. Is there a possibility that Val is going to save that child's life? I, I sure fucking hope so, because like that child needs Gilly and her child definitely need a little bit of salvation from all the horrors of um, this chapter and of all of the world that's around them. That's true. That's a good point. Val, if, if nothing else, is going to be a really useful character in the immediate aftermath of John's assassination, where there's a lot of moving parts and you kind of need someone to move things along in terms of keeping John John's body around, keeping John's wolf around. Melisandre sure to be involved in that somehow, of course. But you know how like Davos in the show is the one to kind of get that going, mm-hmm. but Davos isn't there in the books? Maybe that's Val in mm-hmm. the books, who, who kind of like gets satin together. Maybe she gets like the little pro-John coalition together and tries to, to keep that going. I could definitely see that. So, thank you, Sir Hunding, wannabe Master of Guest of Right, for the question. As always, you can ask us questions we'll answer here at the Nauticast podcast by becoming a sworn sword or higher-level patron over at patreon.com slash nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. And given that this is the first episode we are recording in 2020, we just wanted to say thank you so much to the 305 new patrons who joined our Patreon in 2019. It means a lot to us. It helps us grow and get better at podcasting, and we just can't thank you enough. Yeah, guys and gals, thank you all so very, very much for supporting us. And thank you to all of our patrons, new and old, for your support. We had a couple folks who I saw were had been patrons of ours for two years, and that's crazy, and it, it means a lot. It's, it's, it's insane to me, but it, I, I love it. It's, it's great. Thank you so much. But Patreon is not the only thing that we do. We also have a YouTube channel, and we do live stream episodes. You guys may have heard of one or two of them. And our next live stream episode is coming out on Monday, January 13th at 8.30 p.m., on the most hilarious chapter in a Clash of Kings, the most hilarious chapter in Song of Ice and Fire until we get to Victorian's chapters, Clash of Kings, Theon 2. But enough about Patreon, enough about live streams. We leave the sunshine, beauty, wenching, wine drinking, and fucking treason of Renly Baratheon in the south <laughs> to turn to the far north where shit is not good, my friends. Not good at all. When we last checked in with Jon Snow, who, believe it or not, is actually in a Clash Kings. I know, it's been a while since we talked with him. He had learned some lessons from Don Noy and Elsie Mormont and started his, quote, adventure north of the wall by finding human bones inside the mouth of a giant wormwood tree in the abandoned town of White Tree. Let's see what happens to Jon Snow in this synopsis of a Clash of Kings, John 3. A lashing rain slaps John's face as he presses on next to Elsie Mormont, who does the old man yelling at Cloudbit in the form of grumbling at the weather. Mormont's raven is also grumpy at the weather, but then a burst of wind sends wet leaves flapping around, and John thinks the haunted forest. Huh, the drowned forest, more like it. John, though, hero that he is, stops thinking about his own plight and wonders how Sam is holding up in the baggage train, given that Sam wasn't the best of riders in the best of times. And then John thinks about the wall and how the wall would be weeping hard with warm rain flowing off the sides. Pip and Toad would probably be back at the wall enjoying a fine time, probably with a fire, the bastards. Meanwhile, John had wet, itchy wool clinging to him. Fun! Jarman Buckwell's, how- Jarman Buckwell's horn sounds up ahead and Gior Mormont is pleased. The gods are good. Craster's still there. Are the gods good, Gior? Are they? John wonders what information Craster might have about all the deserted villages. Still, about this Craster fellow, John had heard some pretty dark tales about a half-mad man out in the woods who never turned Night's Watchman away from his keep. But it wasn't just being half-mad, as Diamond, the wooden teeth badass, stated. Craster was a kinslayer, liar, raper, and craven, and hinted that he trafficked with slavers and demons. And worse, the old forester would add, clacking his wooden teeth. There's a cold smell to that one, there is. 
Hmm, cold smell. Where has that come up before? Oh, well, we'll just move on. Elsie Mormont tells John to head back through the column and inform everyone that they've arrived at the, quote, safety of Craster's Keep, and John obeys, moving through the half-mile-long column. Along the way, John passes by Samo on the baggage train and notices the ravens going kind of nuts in the cages. Sam thinks they're upset about the rain, but uh, don't know about that one. John informs Samo that they're close to Craster's Keep, and Sam reports a little more backstory about Craster. Duller as Ed says Craster's a terrible savage. He marries his daughters and obeys no laws but those he makes himself. Sam goes on to reveal that Craster was the son of a ranger and a wildling woman, and that makes him a, uh, you know, John, that, that one thing. <laughs> Pastor John said with a laugh. You could say it, Sam. I've heard the word before. John says he needs to get on to Sir Otten and the rear guard, but instructs Sam to mind himself around Craster's, quote, wives. At the rear guard, Otten welcomes word that they're nearing Craster's keep, and John swings back around the column and moves back toward the LC's position. He gets out wide of the column and notices the wildness of the haunted forest, and how the trees are so thick as to provide a canopy from the rain. John hears a noise and thinks it's ghosts in the undergrowth, but it turns out only to be Dywin, who proceeds to warn John about Craster's wives after John tells Dywin that they found Craster's keep. Ghost does appear suddenly next to John, and then the pair move up to the front of the column. And there, John finds Craster's Keep. Now, John didn't expect a castle or anything, but he wasn't prepared for what Craster's Keep was actually like. It was a midden heap, a pigsty, an empty sheepfold, and a windowless daub and wattle hall, scarce worthy of the name. It was long and low, chinked together from logs and roofed with sod. The compound stood, the compound stood atop a rise too modest to name a hill, surrounded by an earthen dike. And it was all quite muddy after all the rain. They cross an open gate, quote, flanked by a pair of animal skulls on high poles that bear to one side a ram to the other. Hmm. Within the, quote, walls, the vanguard and scouts were trying to put up tents while a small girl pulled carrots and two women prepared to slaughter a pig. The animal squeals were high and horrible, almost human in their distress. <laughs> Yikes. Chet's dogs, remember that guy for the future, were barking until they saw Ghost and ran off for or growled at the direwolf. Ghost and John ignore all the reactions. As John nears the hall, he realizes that it's not large enough to fit the entire ranging, just large enough to fit maybe 50 of the men. So lots of Night's Watchmen would have to sleep outside. John spots Duller's Ed cleaning out the mud from the Elsie's horse, and he heads over to dismount there. Ed tells John that the Elsie had requested his presence inside the hall, but John should leave Ghost outside so that the direwolf doesn't eat one of Craster's children. Hell, Ed might be tempted to eat children if they were served hot. Yikes. Inside the hall, John sees that two dozen rangers are already inside, and he takes note of the room. The hall stank of soot, dung, and wet dog. The air was heavy with smoke, yet somehow still damp. Rain leaked through the smoke hole in the roof. It was all a single room, with a sleeping loft above reached by a, reached by a pair of splintery ladders. John thinks that he wanted to see the wonders of the world beyond the wall when he joined the Night's Watch, but this seems like a poor splendor. Craster sits by a fire in his chair while the command team of the Night's Watch, even Gior himself, has to sit on a bench. Then John takes a closer look at Craster. Craster's sheepskin jerkin and cloak of sewn and, and cloak of sewn skins made a shabby contrast, but around one thick wrist was a heavy ring that had the glint of gold. He looked to be a powerful man, though well into the winter of his days now, his mane of gray hair going his mane of gray hair going to white. A flat nose and a drooping mouth gave him a cruel look, and one of his ears was missing. Craster drinks some thin yellow, probably English beer, and announces that he hasn't seen Benjamin Stark for three years, and he didn't miss that dude either. Thorin Smallwood insists that Benjamin would have passed a year back, and Elsie Mormont puts in that Benjamin was searching for Wayman Royce, Garrett, and Will. 
Crash recalls those three. He didn't like Waymer, especially as his, quote, wives had given the young lordling doe eyes. But Garrett was sort of okay. He lost his ears to the coal. And now Crash has heard that Garrett lost his head. Wait, wait, wait. Crash, Crash, how'd you hear that? John remembered a spray of red blood on white snow and the way Theon Greyjoy had kicked the dead man's head. The man was a deserter. On the way back to Winterfell, John and Rob had raced and found six direwolf pups in the snow a thousand years ago. Mormon asks where Wayburn was heading, but Crash pretends that he doesn't know or care. P.S. He wants some of that fine southern wine and a new axe. He wants to, quote, protect his women. Mormon says, uh, okay, but really we need to get you to the south of the wall. But Crash wants no part of that. He's not going to serve table tonight's watch like some fucking servant. When Mormont persists, saying that the cold winds are rising, Craster says he has deep roots in the community and that they are all very safe here. Thank you. He directs one of his wives to tell everyone how happy they are. The woman licked at thin lips. This is our place. Craster keeps us safe. Better to die free than, like, than live a slave. Slave, muttered the raven. Mormont leans in and says, uh, everyone has fled, even the animals. And let me tell you, Craster, dead men are rising up to kill in the night. They remembered something of who they were at some level as they tried to kill Bormont. But Craster only snorts and says that he's a godly man. The gods protect him, and don't you dare utter such blasphemies under his roof. Jarman Puckwell says that maybe Craster would be safe from the dead, but what about the king, Mance Raider? Would Craster be safe from Mance? Well, Craster ain't about the Mance. Oh, sure, Mance is the one responsible for all the empty villages. And yes, Craster did nail the tongue of the man Mance Raider sent as an envoy to his keep wall, but he's not scared of him. He'll be happy to tell the Night's Watch where Mance is, but not now. Craster redirects the conversation to Gastrite and says the Night's Watch will probably want a pe- a, will probably want a place to stay, right? Some food. Mormont says that the shuttle will be nice, but they're happy to provide some of the food they brought for Craster and his wives. Fine, Craster says, but the Night's Watch can only stay for a night. And if you touch one of his wives, you'll lose a hand. Mormont grumpily agrees, and then Craster says he'll reveal where Mance Raider is. He needs someone to draw him a map. So Mormont tells John to go get Samuel for the map and Dullers Ed to bring Mormont's axe. But before John goes, Craster spies him and says that John has a stark look about him. Mormont says, yeah, good call, asshole. He's the bastard of Ned Stark. A bastard, is it? Craster looked John up and down. Man wants to bet a woman seems he like all to take her as a wife. That's what I do. He shooed John off with a wave. Well, run into your service, bastard, and see that axe is good and sharp now. I've no use for dull steel. <laughs> just going with that West Virginia of Craster accent. We're just going to go with it. We're just going with it. John bows stiff and heads outside. He observes tents going up all over the compound. He heads over to Dullar's head and tells him that about Mormont's order for the axe to be brought into the hall. Dullar's does that. Is it? Isn't it sarcasm bit? And about maybe Craster would like to a hat instead. But John says that Craster wants wine and axe. See, the old bear's clever, Ed said. If we, if we get the wilding willing truly drunk, perhaps he'll only cut off an ear when he tries to slay us with the axe. I have only two ears, but only one head. John replies that Craster is a friend to the watch, and Ed replies that there's the only difference between a wildling friend and a wildling enemy is that when you're dead, your enemies leave you out for the crows and wolves, and friends bury us in secret graves. After a bit more banter, John suddenly hears a cry of wolf. He sprints over to find ghosts backing one of Craster's women against the keep's wall. The direwolf has a dead rabbit in his mouth and another dead one under him. The woman, Gillies, we're going to find out towards the end of this chapter, pleads with John to keep Ghost away. John reassures her that Ghost won't hurt her and that Ghost was only hungry, not catching much game in the haunted forest. John notices that the girl seems pregnant and he asks if she was Craster's daughter. Yes, also his wife. She was going to breed the rabbits as there's no sheep around these parts. Apologetically, John says the Night's Watch will repay her for the lost rabbits, even though he's not sure how precisely, given that he doesn't have any coin on him. Gilly then calls John the Lord, but he says he's not a lord. But then a number of the others are around, John and Gilly. Lark and Chet chief among them. 
Lark says that John's a liar. He's Lord Snow, bastard of Winterfell, Chet adds him. Lark says that Ghost is hungry, maybe he wants to eat your unborn child, Gilly. But John's not about their edgy humor. He tells him to quit it and then and that they're scaring the girl. But Chet says they're only warning her. Suddenly, Gilly remembers that she was, wasn't supposed to talk with the rangers and she bolts. John turns on Chet and Lark and scolds them for scaring Gilly, but they're not about to be scolded. It's just comedy, bro. Still, John realizes why Chet is such a dick. He lost his job due to him interfering with his duties as Eamon Stewart. But Chet and Lark aren't done being total cocks. Lark kneels in the ground to John while Chet says that John is only talking because he's got that direwolf with him. But John won't take the bait. He's not going to fight these two here north of the wall. He walks away with Ghost, taking the, one of the rabbits Ghost killed with him. John starts his search for Samuel, talking to rangers, chatting with the ranger giant in his snug hollow of a dead oak. But it was Gilly who ultimately found Sam under a rock outcropping. John tells Sam that they'll build a fire and have some food, but then Sam needs to go to Craster's Keep to draw a map to show Bormont where Mance Raider is. Sam isn't super happy about meeting Craster, but the two boys and Jill enjoy a nice meal together. At the end of the meal, Sam fantasizes about having a roast leg of lamb and asks John whether there's any sheep about. John replies that oh, there's a sheep pen, but no sheep. Well, then how does Craster feed his men? Um, no men, John says. There was only Craster's wives and some small girls. Funny, that strange, odd. But John tells Sam he should get going. So Sam heads out with Quill and Parchment and John falls asleep. He wakes up to cold air and Ghost disappeared again. He sees that the entire forest had gone cold. Interesting, interesting. But I'm doing the way that George paints this word picture injustice. Full quote. The pale pink light of dawn sparkled on branch and leaf and stone. Every blade of grass was carved from emerald. Every drip of water turned to diamond. Flowers and mushrooms alike wore coats of glass. Even the small puddles had a bright brown sheen. Through the shimmering, through the shimmering greenery, the black tents of, the brothers, of his brothers were encased in a fine glaze of fire. So there is magic beyond the wall, after all, John thought. John wonders what his siblings would think of this place. Sansa would think it's enchanted. Arya would be running around laughing, shouting, wanting to touch everything. But then a voice interrupts his memories of his family. Lord Snow, he heard, soft and meek. John looks up and sees the girl who Ghost had stolen the rabbits from, and she's wearing Sam's cloak. Oh boy. He asks her if she's here because of the rabbits, but she's not. She wants to know if John is brother to a king. Well, kinda. He's half-brother to Rob Stark, king of the north and bastard of Ned Stark. He asks why she's here, and she says that Sam sent her. And yeah, Craster might be mad she's talking with John, but he's dead drunk after Mormont got him wine drunk the night prior. He's not getting up anytime soon. Her breath frosts in the air and small nervous puffs. They say the king gives justice and protects the weak. The woman knelt on the icy ground. My lord, I beg you. John stops her. Please, please don't beg John of anything. Just go home. He's not supposed to speak with her. But she doesn't want John to speak with her. She just wants um, She wants John to take her with him when he leaves. Oh, what a conundrum. But John can't take her to wife. And, and John, he can even take her to wife if he like. No, no, he can't. He can't do that. The Night's Watch takes no wives, fathers no children, etc. Besides, they're guests of Craster's. John won't break guest right. Well, technically, John didn't take any of Craster's food or sleep under his roof, so he's technically not a guest of Craster's. You just have to read the bylaws. Besides, she's only doing it for the baby. John deflects and says he doesn't know her name. Gilly, he called me. For the gilly flower. John says that her name is pretty, thinking of how Sansa told him that's what you should say when a lady says her name, but still, he knows he can't help her. But he asks her whether she's scared of Craster. For the baby, not for me. If it's a girl, it's, that's not so bad. She'll grow a few years and he'll marry her. But Nella says it's to be a boy, and she's had six and knows these things. 
he gives the boys to the gods come the white cold he does and of late it comes more often that's why he started giving them sheep he, even though he has a taste for mutton only now the sheep's gone too next it'll be the dogs till till she lowered her eyes and stroked her belly uh, and you could just feel the hairs of john's neck prick up as he remembers that there were no sons at craster's keep and he asks what gods gilly is referring to the cold gods she says the ones in the night the white shadows and suddenly john was back on the lord commander's tower again a severed hand was climbing his calf and when he pried it off with the point of his long sword it lay writhing fingers opening and closing the dead man rose to his feet blue eyes shining in that gashed and swollen face ropes of torn flesh hung from the great wound in his belly yet there was no blood what color are their eyes he asked her blue as bl as bright as blue stars and as cold she has seen them he thought Craster lied. <laughs> you know, this is the first John chapter I'm really digging in a while. This chapter's so good. Anyways, Gilly asks if John will take her to the wall, but John reports that he's not going to the wall. They're going for Mance Raider to the far north. Gilly looks scared, and she desperately tries to get reassurances that they're coming back through Craster's Keep on the way south. John says, yeah, maybe if we live or some shit, but it's really all up to Elsie Mormont. Realizing that her risk was all for naught and now being very, very afraid, Gilly flees from John. John watched her go, his joy in the morning's brittle beauty gone. Damn her, he thought, resentfully. Damn Sam twice for sending her to me. What do you think I could do for her? We're here to fight the wildlings, not save them. I wonder if John's going to look at this back at this moment with a little bit of shame when he thinks back to it. I digress. John gets his cloak down, pisses into a bush, and heads after that smells of near and heads after the smells of a nearby fire. He finds Gren and Dywin there, and he gets himself a bread heel filled with bacon and salt fish warmed in bacon grease, and I'm already hungry. Dywin brags about having a little menage a quatres with three of Craster's wives, but Gren's like, nah, -uh, you so totally didn't. But Dywin says that Gren is blind. He didn't even see the bear. What what bear? There was there a bear? A bear there was, Gren. A bear, a bear, all black and brown and covered in hair. Dullers Ed says, sort of says, I guess. His brother was killed by a bear, Dullers Ed says. The bear wore Ed's brother's teeth around his neck in a satchel. Lovely, Ed, but John needs to find Mormont and Sam. He asks whether Sam slept in the hall, and then Ed gives one of his all-timers. I not call it sleeping. The ground was hard, the rushes ill-smelling, and my brothers snore frightfully. Speak of bears, if you will. None ever growled so fierce as Brown Benar. I was, uh, I was warm, though. Some dogs crawled atop me during the night. My cloak was almost dry when one of them pissed at him. Or perhaps it was Brown Benar. Have you noticed that the rain stopped the instant I had a roof above me? It will start again now that I'm back out. <sighs> Gods and dogs alike delight to piss on me. John heads off to Craster's Keep. Jarman Buckwell says to keep the edge of his sword sharp as he press, as he passes into the keep. John might need that sword soon. John finds Mormont sitting at Craster's board. Elsie tells John to get his horse ready and they're riding soon. Does he want something to eat first, though? I will not eat Craster's food, John decided suddenly. Well, this is the mini yeah boy moment for me in this utterly horrifying fucking chapter. John walks out and finds Sam behind the hall talking with Gilly. Sam gives John a hurt look and says he thought John would help her. Yeah, how the fuck is John going to help Gilly? They can't bundle her away. Well, Sam knows, but he wants to help. He knows what it's like to be scared. Sam admits that he promised Gilly they'd pick her up on the way home, but John reproaches him for making that promise. There's no telling if they're going to come home this way or not. And damn, Sam, even if they come this way, do you think Mormon is going to let John bring one of Crash's wives with the party? No. Fuck no. Sam stutters and says he'll think of a way, but John's got no time for this. Strangely, though, John walks away confused and angry. He thinks Sam has a big heart, but he's kind of thick of head sometimes. Still, it was impossible and desirable besides. So why do I feel so ashamed? 
you feel ashamed because you know the right thing to do is to get the girl and shot away from Craster. John, oh, John mounts up next to Elsie Marmot as they pass out of Craster's keep, striking north and west. Melting ice drips around them as they move. They move in silence for a time, but then Ghost emerges next to them, shaking off ice water and mud as they cross the stream. John and Mormont ride in silence for a time, but then John the Watcher has an observation. And look, I think this passage is really important to understanding John and Mormont's relationship, as well as what's going on here at Crash Keep. So again, it's a long passage, but I will read it in full. My lord, John said quietly as the wood closed in around them once more. Crash no sheep, nor any sons. Mormont made no answer. At Winterfell, one of the serving women told a story as John went on. She used to say that there were wildlings who would lay with the others to birth half-human children. Hearth tales. Does Craster seem less human to you? In half hundred ways, John thought. He gives his son to the wood. A long silence. Then, yes. And the raven mutters, starting, yes, yes, yes. You knew? Smallwood told me long ago. Long ago. All the rangers know, though few will talk of it. Did my uncle know? All the rangers, Mormont repeated. You think I ought to stop him, kill him if need be? The old bear sighed. Were it only that he wished to rid himself of some mouths, I'd gladly send you and Conways to collect the boys. We could raise them to the black, and the watch would be that much the stronger. But the wildlings serve crueler gods than you or I. Those boys are Craster's offerings. His prayers, if you will. I've got a lot to say about this because this whole exchange confused me until I reread it and reread it and reread it and reread it. But boy, pay careful attention to the language used because it obscures more than it actually reveals. Language is important, people. John thinks that Craster's wives are probably praying different prayers, and Mormont asks how John found out about all this. John admits that one of Craster's wives told him she was frightened and needed help. And then Mormont drops a line, which is essentially the rest of John's narrative arc in A Song of Ice and Fire. The wide world is full of people wanting help, John. Will that some could find the courage to help themselves? We will definitely, definitely unpack this, I promise. Mormont says that Craster's wives should take the axe he gave to Craster and kill their monstrous father-husband. But still, if it wasn't for Craster, a lot of rangers would have died on the ranging's north. John thinks a bit differently about it. He thinks that some people aren't worth having as allies or supporters. That's what Ned thought anyways. My father told me that some men are not worth having, John finished. A bannerman who is brutal or unjust dishonors his liege lord as well as himself. Mormont retorts that the Craster ain't one of theirs. He's a proud independent boy. Besides, they can't play the world's policeman. The Night's Watch has other wars to fight. Other wars, John thought. Yes, yes, I must remember. John asks why German Buckwell told John to keep his sword sharp, and Mormont reports that they learned a lot about Mance Raider, how he's up in the Frost Fangs, but they don't know what he's doing up there. Maybe he's making a city, maybe he's getting an army ready to launch an invasion of the Seven Kingdoms. Many wildlings from Raymond Redbeard to Bale the Bard to Gendleton Gorn to Joraman, who, by the way, blew the Horn of Winter, wonder if that's going to come up again, it will, have invaded before, but this time it's different. Ned Stark is dead. Rob and most of the Northmen are in the south fighting the Lannisters. This is the best chance Mance Raider has to invade the North, and Mance knows it. What will we do, asked John. Find him, said Mormont. Fight him. Stop him. Three hundred, thought John, against the fury of the wild. His fingers opened and closed. And that is The Clash of Kings, John 3. Well, I already laid my cards on the table, Emmett. This is my favorite, no, 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 wait for it, favorite John chapter yet in A Song of Ice and Fire. You can't arrest me. What did you think <laughs> of this chapter? So remember when we did John 1 and 2 with our friend Matt, a.k.a. Joe Magician, and I said that John's chapters in The Clash of Kings were kind of dull until he got into the <laughs> Frost Fangs with Corrin Halfhand? Well, this is the exception. By far the best of John's chapters in the first half of the book. John 3 is a self-contained creep show, a case study in how hinting at horror can be more effective than fully revealing it. 
Everything about our introduction to Craster's Keep is depressing and enraging and gross. It makes me feel like I have bugs on my skin. I need a shower. All of these are compliments, by the way. This is exactly what George is setting out to do, and I think he accomplishes it brilliantly. And in many ways, Clash is a book about putting aside childish things. All of our starklings from John to Brand to Sansa have the scales of childhood just falling from their eyes. Sansa's learning about what true knights are actually like. Brand's learning that ruling is kind of boring. It sucks. And John, do you remember John yelling at Tyrion back in the Game of Thrones, John 2? The Night's Watch is a noble calling. <laughs> Oh, it's it's in our very first John episode. I talked about how John and Sansa are alike in their naive, their naivety, and how they'll both learn better as the books progress. And here's another aspect of John's naive beliefs about night about the Night's Watch dissipating. You know, the Night's Watch seems a bit less noble after this end of this chapter, doesn't it? Now, this is not me doing a touchdown dance on John. You know, I was once a boy who drew pictures of smiling U.S. paratroopers jumping into East Germany to liberate that country from communist oppression. We grow up and we find out that our ideals are not what they're cut out to be. Still, as we've talked about with Sansa, the theme of her learning the reality of the stories isn't some, everybody sucks, and you suck for loving stories, Sansa. Ha ha. There's value and virtue in the stories. For Bran, rule is boring, but it's really important. And for Jon, as he advances in his arc, he's going to glean the best parts of the Night's Watch and attempt, and fail, to turn the watch toward a common defense of humanity against the others instead of this broadly anti-wildling military broadly anti-wildling military organization and a lot of that thematic moment for movement for john starts right here in this chapter as you said at the top of your synopsis it is a very jarring transition from renly's handsome young summer nights laughing and drinking and screwing in the rolling southern grasslands to the night's watch making their slow miserable way through the drowned forest as john calls it All that rain and mud does more than set the mood, however. It establishes right from the start the desperate need for shelter, which in turn focuses us on Craster's Keep and whether it will provide that shelter. Throughout John 3, we receive assurances that Craster is a friend to the Watch, a trustworthy host providing shelter in the storm. But those assurances are ultimately outnumbered by all the signs pointing in the opposite direction. Like Harrenhal in the Riverlands, which we will finally get to in a few chapters, Craster's Keep exemplifies the danger all around it, rather than being an exception, rather than being an exception to it. As such, John and Sam are not left reassured that the leadership of the Watch knows what they're doing and has a handle on both the mission and morality. Instead, they're left with a nasty taste in their mouths about not only Craster, but about the institution to which they belong. This is their are we the baddies moment. <laughs> and George does such a terrific job building those tension as he goes through the chapter. And you really have to go line by line to see all the narrative clockwork. First, John establishes the stakes coming off of John 2 at White Tree. After seven empty villages, they had all come to dread finding Crasters as dead and desolate as the rest. But it seems they would be spared that. Perhaps the old bear will finally get some answers, he thought. Anyway, we'll be out of the rain. So both the mission and the general well-being of the people on that mission depends on this Craster fellow still being there, unlike everyone else north of the Wall. So immediately, as readers, we should be asking, why is Craster still there? Mm -hmm. What does he know that everyone else doesn't? What is he doing that no one else is willing to do? As first-time readers, we've never even heard of Craster before, despite the smooth retcon later on in this chapter connecting both Benjen and Waymar Royce's rangings to Craster's Keep. So it's up to Thorn Smallwood to give us our first take on one of the worst people in Westeros. The man's half mad, I won't deny it, he told the old bear. Ah, but you'd be the same if you spent your life in this cursed wood. And I just look at the delicate defensive mm-hmm. phrasing of that. Smallwood feels the need to defend Craster as though his own reputation is on the line. I won't deny it. And right there we see implied the question that will be made explicit at chapter's end. 
Does Craster work for the Watch? And if so, isn't the Watch culpable in what he does? Smallwood then blames Craster's environment. It's the cursed wood that made him what he is. It's this dangerous, threatening, you know, starvation-laden environment that made him this way. And that he brings up the cursed wood, that is a genuine hint as to the other's involvement in what's going on here. But no, the plain fact is that most wildlings do not do, as Craster does. That's why he's a pariah. So if Craster is a monster, and it can't be explained away by his circumstances, why is Thorin Smallwood sticking up for him to Elsie Mormont? Even so, he's never turned a ranger away from his fire, nor does he love Mance Raider. There it is. <laughs> Despite Smallwood's out-and-proud bigotry towards wildlings in every other circumstance, he is willing, actually eager, to make these apologies and evasions for Craster, even though most wildlings, including Mance, have never done deeds as dark as Craster, and again, hate him for what he's doing. As such, you can see that Smallwood's hatred of the wildlings is not about their behavior. It's about whether or not they're useful to the Watch, because bigotry is rooted in fidelity to power. The wildlings belong on the bottom, as far as Smallwood is concerned, and Craster is one of the quote-unquote good ones, because he doesn't challenge that structure. Craster is only hurting other wildlings. Smallwood doesn't care about that. Smallwood only cares about whether Craster shelters him and his comrades and can help them against Mance Raider, and he will swallow the rest without complaint. It's kind of funny. It's, it's like that, what, what the Americans did after World War II in bringing a number of Nazi scientists over to the United States for their rocket program. You're like, well, yeah, they were Nazis at one point, but we really need them to beat the Russians in the space race. And to be fair, the Russians did the exact same fucking thing in bringing German Nazi scientists over to, to Moscow to, to work on their space program. At the same time, like, yeah, it's, it's really... <laughs> it's really kind of like shattering shots illusions about what the Night's Watch actually does. The Night's Watch is a noble calling, but we're also working with this horror horror of a human being out here north of the wall because we have to, we have to, we have to, we actually have to. You know, Craster is the first wildling that John encounters and has a conversation with. And at the end of the chapter, he's going to regard Craster as monstrous and less than human in half a hundred ways. So Thor and Smallwood's bigotry could have taken root in John. It could have confirmed John's already existing cultural disaffinity for the wildlings. What I'm saying is that Thorin Smallwood could have become the evil mentor for John, and that's why it's so vital that Thorin never becomes a mentor figure to John. Instead, John's The Clash of Kings mentor figure is both Elsie Mormont and, more importantly, Corrin Halfhand at the end of the book, who both thinks poorly of Thorin Smallwood and has a respect for the wildlings. It all summed up by this great quote that he gives to John at the end of The Clash of Kings. Only fools like Thorin Smallwood despise the wildlings. They are as brave as we are, John. So it's interesting that George frames the Wildlings introduction in the form of Craster, and then later we're going to meet Egret, and then in Storm of Swords we're going to meet all sorts of different Wildlings. They're a vast and diverse group of people, and like you were saying, very few of them really resemble who Craster is. There's a couple Wildlings in Mance's camp that you're like, yeah, these guys really suck, like the Weeper. Um some of the other ones as well, uh, or or Elda who with with the eagle, but most of them are pretty okay people all all around. Not Craster, and it's important I think that John has this kind of illusion set up about who the wildlings actually are before he encounters the actual wildlings, the true wildlings. Not to use a true no true Scotsman fallacy, but the true wildlings in the form of Mance Raider and his compatriots and their valiant quest to get their people south of the wall. 
Absolutely, and it's not just John's illusions about the wildlings that are fading, but about the Night's Watch and its relationship to the wildlings. As the chapter starts in his thoughts, John reiterates why the Watch puts up with all this. So long as he gives us a hot meal and a chance to dry our clothes, I'll be happy. That's where John starts. He's not concerned about the larger ethical implications of Craster's. He just wants a place to, to dry out. He's just soaked and exhausted, and that's he's not thinking beyond the next step, and I get that in his shoes. As the chapter goes on, he gradually starts expanding that bubble back to the world around him and seeing where he has to take a step. And that starts with Dywin, who runs us through Craster's rap sheet. Dywin said Craster was a kinslayer, liar, raper, and craven, and hinted that he trafficked with slavers and demons. And worse, the old forester would add, clacking his wooden teeth. There's a cold smell to that one, there is. That mention of the cold smell, the evocation of the others... This is really where the horror starts in John 3. And this isn't a great example of, you know, you have the rule show, don't tell in writing. But there are some cases where it really is more appropriate to tell rather than show. Like, it makes sense that Craster's atrocities are just being told in whispers because they're being covered up. It makes sense that we're not seeing an outright, you know, image of the White Walkers that we do in the prologue to A Game of Thrones or in Sam's first chapter in The Storm of Swords. This is an area in which the other's involvement is being hidden by the authorities. So it's just a smell. It's just a rumor. That's all you get. That's all John has to work with. And that fits his overall sense of, like, frustration and alienation in that chapter. That it's He doesn't even get to directly confront the others. You know what I mean? It's just the idea of the others. And that's kind of even more frustrating for him. You're right. And the thing is, you don't have to show, especially since you have back in a Game of Thrones, you have John having this thought as he's smelling Arthur going for Elsie Mormont. The smell that engulfed him was so queer and cold that he almost gagged. It's a cue for readers that something is very, very wrong. And that chapter in Game of Thrones, and it's a cue here for readers that something is very, very wrong about Craster. Could he be connected to the others? Yeah, obviously. I mean, you've read A Song of Ice and Fire and you've watched Game of Thrones at least through season four. So I, yeah, it, it you could do the tell, not show version because you've already done the show, don't tell portion of it back in the Game of Thrones. So here, hitting back at what John experienced when Arthur was going for Elsie Mormont is an important element in letting this kind of slow burn creep show kind of develop as the chapter progresses. Very great point. And thinking about the horror and slow burn horror, especially, I recently rewatched The Shining. The peerless god king of all horror movies. You know, there's there's debate to be had about what's the second best or third best or fourth best <laughs> horror movie. But none of them are worthy of making eye contact with The Shining. I don't make the rules. And one <laughs> one great element in The Shining is the idea of the, the mortal lapdog to an immortal entity. Like in both The Overlook Hotel and The Shining and Beyond the Wall and The Song of Ice and Fire, you have this, this magical metaphysical force that's half unknowable and half terrifying. And then you have this like stumbling, crumbling, bumbling patriarch in both cases, Jack and the Shining and Craster here, who just go around beating their chest about how independent and great they are and how all the women around them should just stop complaining about them being abusive monsters and just suck their dick. But in both <laughs> cases, despite that titanic self-regard, their relationship to the metaphysical force is total subservience. Like Craster just completely bends the knee to the others, despite all mm -hmm. his talk about freedom. And Jack in The Shining, despite his assertions of I'm creative, I got to be a man on my own, I'm a frontiers, he just completely ends up knuckling under for the spirits that, that haunt the Overlook Hotel. So when I think of Craster, when I visualize him in my mind, I think of Jack Nicholson in The Shining, especially towards the end. Just like terrifying and awful and hunting down his family on behalf of the metaphysical force he now works for. But also just kind of pathetic in how overblown his self-image is. And in both <laughs> in both cases... They're so in over their head so clearly, and yet they, they think they've mastered this. And at the end, that force just, just swallows them up. And it's that same kind of sense of slow dread 
And that's 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 really what I love about Craster's Keep. It's not jump scares. It's just this slow realization of what it is you're dealing with. And again, it's around the corners. It's being filtered. By filtering these atrocities through the perspective of the watch, we get to see their biases as an institution and as individuals. And it's really important that this applies not only to outright assholes like Thor and Smallwood, but generally decent people like Sam Tarley. Like, look at the charges that Sam lays against Craster in the order that he mentions them. First one he mentions, Craster marries his daughters. This is the first time we learned that, and yeah, this is unimaginably horrible. It frames Craster's Keep as this nightmarish prison factory of physical and mental abuse. Okay, what's the next charge Sam brings up against Craster? He obeys no laws but his own. Okay, well, that's a little <laughs> more ambiguous. It would seem to depend on the law in question, right? And then the final charge Sam brings up, he's a bastard. <laughs> Actually, Sam, that's not a bad thing at all. Remember the last book, When a Bastard Saved Your Life? It's so heartbreaking, but I think so realistic, that Sam has absorbed his class's prejudices even while being rejected by that class. He deems bastardy the equivalent of incestuous rape, and he doesn't realize what a profound insult that is to John until the word is halfway out of his mouth. All of this communicates to the reader that the watch is here to preserve the status quo, not change it for the better. Craster's crimes, like, cry out for some form of redress, but John 3 tells us in ways large and small that the watch won't help. Absolutely. And more than simply not helping, they're abating, they're aiding and abetting this guy in continuing on in the horrors that he's going to be bringing to both the people within his keep, the women within his keep, his daughters within the keep, as well as to the Night's Watch and to others, probably the Wildlings too, as we're going along the way. And I think that takes us to the actual Craster's Keep and the majesty of this place. Majesty, <laughs> is, that, is that the right word? Coming off of the reach, it's just so deflating and pathetic to show up at Craster's Keep, isn't it? And the first sight of Craster's Keep is so wonderfully designed to deflate John's expectations, both the mature and the immature ones. As John says, he didn't expect a full-on stone castle like Winterfell or Castle Black north of the Wall. He had pictured something like a smaller, cruder version of Deepwood Mott, right? But the keep he sees is virtually defenseless, and the visuals are all of chaos and disrepair. So John is wrong, not because his military instincts were off, but because he doesn't yet understand the true nature of power at Craster's Keep, the way the others both shield and menace its residents like mobsters demanding a protection fee. Even before we learn about the White Walkers' involvement, however, we immediately get the sense that this keep will not, in fact, fully provide the hospitality that Smallwood argues makes it worth overlooking Craster's sins. This passage that you talked about in your synopsis stood out strongly to me on reread. A host of piglets rooted about three huge sows in the sty. Nearby, a small girl pulled carrots from a garden, naked in the rain, while two women tied a pig for slaughter. The animals' squeals were high and horrible, almost human in their distress. And I think it's interesting that George is writing it to, like, blur the line between the people and the pigs. You've got the piglets and then, like, the mom pigs, then you immediately cut to small girl and older women, and you've got the pigs' cries being human-like in their distress. This is there, I think, not to lend support for Smallwood's dehumanization of the wildlings. It's to give us a sense of how people are treated at Craster's Keep, like sacrificial animals being tied up for slaughter. I think it's interesting to consider if you skim that passage I just read there, you might think it's the girl being sacrificed. Like you might, if you just read it too quickly, you might end up thinking, oh, is that girl being tied to, you know, uh, to a stake for slaughter? And I wonder if that's intentional on George's part to give us that image just in passing of, no, it's the, it's the person they're sacrificing. And the other expectation of John's undercut by Craster's Keep has to do with the Wildlings themselves. There's these great moments in this chapter. Uh, John remembered how he'd felt the day they had left the Wall, nervous as a maiden, but eager to glimpse the mysteries and wonders beyond each new horizon. Well, 
Here's one of the wonders, he told himself, <laughs> gazing about the squalid, foul-smelling hall. The acrid smoke was making his eyes water. A pity that Pip and Toad can't see all they're missing. And then when he sees Craster, so this is a wildling. John remembered old Nan's tales of the savage folk who drank blood from human skulls. Craster seemed to be drinking a thin yellow beer from a chipstone cup. Perhaps he had not heard the stories. And I love those, just those great little ironic moments where John gradually, he kind of grows up all at once in these moments as he suddenly realizes how much of his worldview doesn't really make sense. And this is a great example of George's threefold approach to magic and wonder and just fantasy elements as a whole in A Song of Ice and Fire. You've got the first layer of the songs and stories that tell you that you know, the, the, the world is full of, of rainbows and transformation and unicorns. And then you've got the second layer of reality deconstructing the songs and stories about, you know, going b beyond the wall and seeing just like a, a foul heap full of miserable people and they're just drinking thin beer. Then you got the third layer of, no, the magic still is there. It still exists, but it's just, it's buried and in the background on the margins, as you said. It's wilder and weirder and worse than you ever thought. The, the great example of this is, is the Night Fort and the Storm of Swords, the brand chapter there, where at first you get Bran's stories about the Night Fort, all the wild stories of, of Mad Axe and the, all the Sentinels and the ghosts and whatnot. But then when he hears noise in the well, it's just Sam. So you think, okay, secular explanation, maybe the ghost stories aren't real. But then George hits you with the Black Gate. <laughs> At the bottom of the well, and you go, oh, this is wilder than even Bran stories ever imagined. And something I was thinking about is that maybe George intends for this structure to mirror the experience of the fantasy reader as you hmm. age. It's like a dance. One step towards the fantastical, one step away as you get older, and then one step back with what you learned while you were away. Like, that's how a lot of people relate to art, isn't it? Like, when you're in, your, cool, yeah. in, your, in your 20s, like, oh, the stuff I liked as a child, how gauche. How silly. And then when you get a little older, you're like, no, there was something there. There was something that drew me to that. And I have a different perspective on it now, but there was something real there. Like George wants to ground fantasy in the real world, but not in such a way that strips it of what makes it fantasy in the first place. The fantastical elements remain lurking underneath, intertwining with realistic corruption and weakness. That is a difficult balance to strike, and I don't think it always works, but I do think it's at the core of what makes A Song of Ice and Fire so special. But as you say, it is such a pointed decision on George's part to have Craster be the first wildling we meet beyond the wall. He is a literal threshold guardian, a mediator between the worlds of Watch and Wildling, and as such acts as a commentary on the values of both worlds. So it really matters that the first words out of his mouth are almost <laughs> certainly a lie. Yep. I've not seen Benjamin Stark for three years, he was telling Mormont, and if truth be told, I never once missed him. As we see in this chapter, Craster's Keep is the first place rangers go north of the Wall for both shelter and information. Surely Benjen got this far, or his dead men would have been, quote-unquote, returned to the watch by the others much sooner, right? Exactly, exactly. Plus, there's a piece of evidence that Benjen was at Craster's Key much, much more recently than three years prior. Uh, I was talking to my friend Matt, Joe, the Joe Magician, today about this. He calls Craster's very obvious lie, as we, as we find out here. So, Craster says this, when that John overhears Craster saying this. Garrett wasn't half bad for a crow. Had less ears than me, that one. The bite took him, same as me. Craster laughed. <laughs> now I hear he got no head either. The bite do that too? Well, well, wait, wait, wait. How did Craster find out that Garrett was beheaded? Well, I guess we, we find out that Mance Raider had sent an envoy. Mance Raider was at Winter, the Winterfell Feast. So maybe Mance Raider found out about it, took that information off the wall, and then informed the, the envoy who then went to Craster's Keep. No, uh, no, pro probably not. I, I mean, that's an interesting theory, but I think probably not. I think... George is hitting that Craster is lying about not seeing Benjen for three years because the only person who could have told Craster about Garrett being beheaded was dot 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 Benjen and a small band of rangers who went north of the wall after returning to Castle Black with John. 
And, you know, it's also interesting, too, to consider was Craster the one who's like told the others about Benjamin and his party? Hey, I've got some fresh meat for you. Go find him out in the woods here. You know, you don't have to take away pigs this time, right? <laughs> Go after those guys, please. Please just on, on the house, on the house. I think that's a great catch. And yeah, he's lying to Elsie Mormont. He's mocking the man they're looking for. Remind me why this guy qualifies as our friend again. Now look, the wildlings John meets later have plenty of legitimate criticisms to make of the Watch and of the realm south of the Wall in general. But Craster is not among them. The Watch is, if anything, far too felicitous of Craster. They swallow his bullshit and thank him for the privilege, giving a lifelong rapist a brand new weapon. The LC even offers Craster shelter from the others, which he never thinks to offer Mance, by the way, because again, Mance is a threat to the power structure the Lord Commander upholds. Craster responds to this offer by arguing that taking this shelter would amount to subservience, and that is in contradiction to wildland culture and ideology built around freedom. Again, this is an argument made by considerably more sincere and sympathetic wildlings, like Egret and Mance. In Craster's hands, it is twisted and distorted beyond all recognition. Freedom, for Craster, means the right to enslave others. There is a hideous irony at work when he forces one of his daughter wives to declare that it's better to die than live a slave. As Bloodraven immediately notes via Mormont's Raven, no, she is a slave. Ideologies built around exalting the individual this much always have to answer what you do about individuals who do not respect the rights of other individuals. Craster isn't concerned about losing his own freedoms. He's concerned that his daughters might gain their freedom from him. His power over them is rooted in their isolation. They keep their entire world from cradle to grave, with nowhere to go, no one to support any potential defiance. All of that would vanish from the moment they arrived at Castle Black, even if the Lord Commander was still willing to look the other way. It's the same reason Craster never joined Mance's gathering, because he will not allow his daughters to glimpse an alternate authority figure to whom they might appeal. I mean, we see Gilly go to John in this chapter on the strength of him being the brother of a king of a place she's never heard of. Mm -hmm. So I think she would definitely go to the wildling king himself if she had the chance, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely, because Craster is the anti-Mance. I mean, it's it's so clear when you look at some of the parallels between the two. I mean, before Craster became a monster, he was the son of a Night's Watchman and a wildling woman. Well, so was Mance. He was also descending from a wildling woman and a Night's Watchman. Craster's embraced this conception of freedom in the same way that the Confederate States of, the, of America embraced the conception of freedom. Yes, you as the individual white man have the ability to have be free and you have the freedom to keep slaves? Slaves, yes, absolutely. The final like anti-parallel is that Craster gives his sons to the others, something we're going to be talking about at significant length later on. Mance Raider, in contrast, will go on a dangerous mission on his enemy's behalf in order to save Arya in Winterfell because, as Melisandre puts it, our false king has a prickly manner, but he will not betray you. We hold his son, remember, and he, owe, and he owes you his life. Now, the, there's questions arising whether Mance knows that the son that he has in quotation marks is actually his son or his Gilly's son, but he's still going to bat for this kid, this innocent kid, because he's Mance Raider, because his conception of being a free folk embraces this ideology of responsibility. Responsibility and freedom intermingles in Mance, and that is not present in Craster. Responsibility is a duty that he inflicts upon the women in his keep, and it's something that he will never, ever do himself. You make great points about Mance. After all, he puts it all on the line to keep his people, his family, you could say, safe from the others. And the cold truth at the heart of this chapter is that Craster would happily let the others have these women, along with his sheep and his pigs and his sons, before he would ever let them live a life free of his control. And given that the others, as we've talked about before, embody death, 
I think this is the abuser's logic of, if I can't have you, then nobody can, filtered through a medieval fantasy context. And even putting aside swords and horses and ice demons, this is a, this is a real-world phenomenon that very much lingers to the modern day. Fathers who state a desire to quote-unquote protect their daughter's quote-unquote innocence is really about their own power and their own control. Like Craster says he needs a new axe to keep the women safe, but every time his new toy comes up in conversation, he's glaring at them or slapping them around. So where's the danger coming from exactly? The axe isn't there to keep them safe. How would that axe in Crestor's hands be enough to protect them against Mance, let alone the others? The axe is there to keep the women in line, a silent threat to them. As I've said before, A Clash of Kings is all about the intertwining of the political and magical worlds, and I think this is the best example of that in John's chapters in the book. The magical horror has enabled the political horrors. Long before the ice demons try to end the world, they underwrite this all-too-human patriarchal nightmare. It makes a horrible kind of sense, right, that the kind of man who would rape and imprison his daughters is the kind of man who would sell his sons to the evil nighttime fairies of the Unseelie Court. Mm-hmm. And just in case the Watch's culpability in these horrors wasn't clear enough, George has Craster threaten any Night's Watchman who goes near these women. And again, it's not really about protecting them. Yes, there are unabashed rapists among the Night's Watch, but that's not really what Craster is worried about. I think what he's worried about is exactly what happens with Gilly and Sam. That if he allows these people to talk and fraternize, they'll see their common humanity, and one of these women might try to escape. And this scene concludes with one of the most bitterly ironic moments in a series hardly lacking for them. A bastard, is it? Craster looked John up and down. Man wants to bet a woman? Seems like you ought to take her to wife. That's what I do. Craster displays precisely the kind of anti-bastard bigotry found south of the wall, and expressed by Sam earlier in the chapter. Some things never change no matter where John goes. It's just, it's so appalling to read Craster talk about taking his daughters to wife as though that's the socially responsible thing for a man to do, as opposed to fathering a bastard. And it's all the worse when you know what he does with his true-born sons. How dare this man talk about himself like he's living a model life? (laughs) Craster's Keep is a great example of how the institution of marriage, which was supposed to protect women in feudal societies to make up for their lack of individual legal rights, can in fact function as a set of chains around them. By virtue of them being Craster's wives and this being his roof and his rule, these women are actually afforded less protection than a random single woman on the street. Like if she's attacked, at least she can appeal to guardsmen or just passersby for help. Craster's wives can't even do that. By becoming his wives, even by force, they become his property. And we again, we will see a similar gruesome loophole south of the wall with Ramsay and Lady Hornwood later on in the book. So while Craster talks a big game about wildling freedom and how distinct and important that is, what he's actually done is recreate all the worst aspects of power structures south of the wall. We'll see the same thing with the Fens, who are petty lords obsessed with their own status and power every bit as much as like the Florence. And we'll see it again with Verimir Sixkins, who is basically a wildling version of Euron. <laughs> So what, then, is the watch getting in exchange for overlooking all of this? Well, 30 of us will be warm and dry, John thought once he'd gotten a good look at the hall. Perhaps as many as 50. That's not much. I'm tempted to say it's not worth it. No, it's not worth it. Not worth it for the moral compromises. Not worth helping out an ally of the others. And especially not worth it for morale reasons. Something very simple. Who was it that slept under the roof as we're finding out in this chapter? Seems like... Mostly officers of the Night's Watch, and Duller said, where were the common watchmen? Out in the wet, out in the mud. You know, I was always told in the army and believed that leaders should endure the same hardships as their men, and officers always eat last. Having a dry night seems like the crudest of luxuries, but I, I gotta tell you, when you're, you've are you been out in the rain and mud for days on end, you're soaked to the bone, the food is bad, and you get to the one spot which has a roof over your head, 
and it's the officers who get to stay under the roof, man, the men are going to be fucking pissed. What I'm saying is that I've been TDY at Joint Base Lewis-McChord in Washington State, Temper Rainforest, and the seeds for the Night's Watch mutiny are being planted here in the conduct of the higher echelons of power. The power structure of south the power structure south of the wall is re being reflected on the night's watch as we've talked about in numerous john chapters in the past and it's going to start having cascading effects on the morale of the men and how the lower ranks of the night's watch are looking at their leadership structure and it's not good for the leaders it's not good for the men either so well put sir and one thing we both like about stannis is that he suffers along with his men he starves along with his men he shivers along with his men he may have a general attitude of thinking himself better than every other person because that's just stannis <laughs> but but this this uh, political weakness you're talking about is something that stannis manages to turn into a strength and that's why we see in a dance with dragons when he's marching through the snow in the north that while his lords are starting to have doubts his, his common men still have faith in him and i think it's in large part because of that mm -hmm. but we've talked about craster we've talked about his keep Let's talk about Gilly. So far, John is merely our eyes on the moral conundrum at Craster's Keep. He's playing something of a passive role so far in the chapter. Gilly forces him to be an active participant. We meet her in the context of Ghost eating one of her rabbits and terrifying her. And as she notes, they just lost the chance for a next generation of rabbits. Life at Craster's just got a little bit harder, and it's all thanks to John and his dog. Moreover, as John notes internally, money will do no good as a replacement. So this just emphasizes the culture gap at work and how inadequate the Night's Watch solutions are. So if John starts the chapter thinking, okay, I don't care about anything else, I just want to get out of this fucking rain. <laughs> now he's like, oh, I am guilty. I am implicated in this and I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to make good. The next morning, John is lost in a moment of reverie at the sight of nature's coat of ice. This is an oasis, the one scrap of beauty in an otherwise ugly chapter. The pale pink light of dawn sparkled on branch and leaf and stone. Every blade of grass was carved from emerald. Every drip of water turned to diamond. Flowers and mushrooms alike wore coats of glass. Even the mud puddles had a bright brown sheen. Through the shimmering greenery, the black tents of his brothers were encased in a fine glaze of ice. So there is magic beyond the wall, after all. And John thinks about how much Arya and Sansa would love this. Right before Gilly shows up in need of help. And that is no accident. George pulls the exact same trick with Alice Karstark in A Dance with Dragons. John is forever moved to save women precisely because he can't save his sister. So he saves other women instead. Gilly wears Sam's cloak as if he's already taken her under his protection. Like Alice Karstark with Sigorn's uh, cloak mm -hmm. at their wedding. It's a statement that the Night's Watch vows to protect the realms of men include her. As John will argue about the wildlings again in A Dance with Dragons. And it's so telling that Gilly appeals to him in Rob's name, not because she belongs to his realm or even wants to, but in the name of the ideal of justice that kings are supposed to represent, something she has only ever heard about. So now it's Arya and Sansa and Rob all wrapped up in her impossible request. This is designed to torture Jon Snow, <laughs> who always wants to reunite with his family, who always wants to go home to Winterfell. Now suddenly all of that longing is being tied up in this impossible request. As he tells both Gilly and Sam, there is no logistical way to say yes to her, like they're going in the wrong direction. But Jon really has no counterargument to the larger ethical point being made here, and I think that's what he's responding to. Yeah, it's all about ratcheting up slowly the tension in John's sense of ethics and how he should be relating to the world around him. You know, John is consistently thrust in this position of whether he should or shouldn't make the choice to save individual innocence at the expense of the greater whole. This point was made really, really well by our friend Adam Feldman of the Marinese Blot in his other war series about how John's nobility prioritizes saving individual innocence over the danger posed to the greater mass of humanity. The thing of it all is that this isn't one of the circumstances where where John is 
saving the greater whole. In fact, he's doing quite the opposite, as we're going to find out as this chapter progresses and as what Gilly reveals to John. Exactly. Craster is not only imprisoning and raping his daughters, he is not only abandoning his sons, he is directly helping the others who attacked the Watch. Gilly's revelation about the specific cold gods that Craster serves is the payoff for the empty sheepfold and the keep's lack of defenses. This is why, and it's because Craster made a deal with the devil. We will talk more about the specifics of that deal later on in the episode. But as John notes immediately, this means Craster lied to the Lord Commander about this, just another reason he can't and shouldn't be trusted. As such, John refuses to eat Craster's food, which is a very significant decision in a story that revolves so often around guest right, especially at Craster's Keep, as we'll see in Storm of Swords. It's a sign, especially for a Stark in the wake of the Harvest Feast we saw in Brand 3, that John no longer wishes to be responsible for Craster. Mm. He no longer wishes to be implicated. Gilly pointed out that because he hadn't had the food before, he wasn't obligated to Craster, and John wants to keep it that way, even if he's not willing to directly help her. It's an early hint that John wants to change watch policies toward the wildlings. So while he does lash out at Sam for not thinking through the long-term ramifications of his actions, John is clearly venting in part because of how bad he feels about all this, as he says to himself, so why do I feel so ashamed? Fundamentally, this is not the person John wants to be. Gilly got to him. She described the kind of person he does want to be, the font of justice in the land, and he realized he is not measuring up. And now he feels even worse about Ghost eating the rabbit, because that was one more beating heart between the others and her son. John's worldview, and Sam's worldview too, for all that he has his own blind spots, is just not that of Thorn Smallwoods. I go so far as to say they are irreconcilable worldviews. You're, you're right. They're absolutely irreconcilable worldviews. You know, G- George does an excellent job back in the Game of Thrones, John 4, of having John step out against his own self-interest to defend Samuel from the beatdown that Sir Alistair Thorne has his boys inflicting on, the, on, on Sam. But then after Samuel confesses to his cowardice, John goes out of his way even further to ensure that Samuel doesn't take another beating. And then he defends Samuel from having to graduate in the recruit class behind his to Maester Eamon. In all of those circumstances, back in the Game of Thrones, John goes outside. He thinks outside the box and goes outside of what was expected of him to do the right thing. With Gilly, John can't think of a way to go outside of his way to help this poor girl, who I'd argue is in much more dire circumstance than even poor Sam, who was likely at the threat of his life back at Castle Black. So it's only natural that in this chapter, it's Samwell who's trying to figure an out-of-the-box way to save Gilly. As John says, Sam, have you taken leave of your senses? We may not even return this way. And if we do, do you think the old bear is going to let you pack off one of Craster's wives? Sam thinks. I thought, well, maybe by then uh, I could think of a way. And wouldn't you know it, by come storm of swords, Sam will figure out a way to get Gilly out of Craster's Keep. All he's going to need to happen is a mutiny, Lord Commander Elsie, Elsie Mormont's death, Craster's death, and a plan <laughs> devised by Craster's older daughter wives to help get Gilly out of Craster's Keep. Gilly and the babe, of course. That's all. That's all he'll need. But yeah, I mean, yes, yeah, Sam doesn't have an exact step-by-step plan. But as he says, maybe by then I'll think of a way because he's trying to say, look, I don't have a perfect plan about how to execute this, but I know I can't just walk away from this. It's it, it's maybe worth doing something risky and the hopes we'll come up with a plan later. Maybe that's actually the more ethical thing to do. And at some level, he convinces John of that. And that's why you get this this great conversation between John and Elsie Mormont. All the tension, all these themes we're talking about come together. This line is just so chilling. My lord... John said quietly as the wood closed in around them once more. Croster has no sheep, nor any sons. Again, it emphasizes the act of telling, the act of saying something out loud. Mormont says this is what no one is willing to speak about, what no one is willing to say out loud. Mormont won't even respond to John's implied question. He forces John to be the one to say it. 
and then he tries to dismiss the connection to the others, asking John if Craster seems less than human. And John's honest answer, if only in his own head, is yes, inhuman <laughs> on the inside, where it counts, not the outside. And the Lord Commander, to his credit, is not the kind of guy to just snap at John to follow orders. He tries to explain himself. But I gotta say, I am not impressed with his explanation. Mm -hmm. It strikes me as the hypocritical, contradictory, and ultimately cowardly explanation of a man decent enough to know this isn't how he should be using his power, but so lacking in empathy and imagination that he can't come up with another way to use it. But, as with Catalan and Renly, this is a dense conversation built on obfuscation and half-truths, so it demands close scrutiny before we draw conclusions. For example, the Lord Commander refers to the boys in Craster's Keep as sacrifices given to the gods that the wildlings serve, crueler than those that John and the Lord Commander worship. And there is some confusion definitely about what's exactly being said here. That's not an explicit reference to the others, but we just saw in John 2 that the wildlings do, in fact, worship the old gods, same as those worshipped by House Stark and House Mormont, the same gods before which John and presumably the Lord Commander said their vows. So I'm tempted to say that either Mormont consciously knows that Craster gives his sons to the others, or, like Tywin regarding the twincest, he knows deep down but keeps it buried. Both of these options are bad, especially for a man leading an expedition <laughs> into what is both Wildling and White Walker territory. But uh, is there something I'm missing here about what Mormont might be talking about? I mean, there's a third possibility, I want to say, and it comes back to the chapter you're referencing, John 2 at White Tree. Quote, John knelt and reached a gloved hand down into the mall. The inside of the hollow was deep with dried sap and blackened by fire. Beneath the skull, he saw another, smaller, the jaw broken off. It was half buried in ash and bits of bone. You know, it strikes me that Mormont might be connecting giving his sons to the gods with what they would have said white tree. Maybe Craster's, you know, just giving his sons to the werewood trees as some sort of sacrifice to nature, right? Right? <laughs> Moreover, it's crucial that John doesn't precisely share the information that Gilly told him about the others taking Craster's sons. Instead, John says he gives his sons to the wood. Would like werewood trees that you know we saw back at White Tree, John, or like the others, which is what you actually mean. You're not being ex exceptionally clear here, John. Again, this doesn't negate what you're saying, man. I, I tend to favor Mormont and Tywin-esque levels of denial, but to me, it's telling that when Mormont was talking with Tyrion back in Tyrion's third chapter in Game of Thrones, he tells him, "You must make them understand. I tell you, my lord, the darkness is coming. There are wild things in the woods, direwolves and mammoths and snow bears the size of aurochs, and I have seen darker shapes in my dreams." That seems a little ambiguous given how worried Mormont is. Like if Mormont had intelligence from the rangers that had gone up to Craster's Keep of what was occurring there, it seems like maybe he should have told the Queen's brother as much. Now, of course, this might be where George's guarding style comes up a little short. You had brought up earlier about how Craster's kind of soft retconned into a Clash of Kings because there's no reference to Craster in a Game of Thrones. And like Mystery Science Theater 3000 told me back in the day, maybe I should just remember this is this book and I should just relax. <laughs> True. I think this is one of the situations where you might have to just uh, uh, accept the mystery, to quote a serious man. And there might just be some permanent ambiguity around, around whether Mormont realizes he's talking about the others or not. And I think we can move on instead to how Mormont talks about things at the human level. He does a very poor job of, empath of empathizing with the women in Craster's Keep. It is John who wonders what desperate prayers they offer in lieu of sons. Mormont instead makes the truly infuriating statement that the women should seek to, quote, help themselves to the axe and kill Craster. So wait, it's not your job, the knowledgeable, powerful leader of men aiding and abetting this man who swore to protect everyone? This isn't your job to free imprisoned rape victims? They were just looking for a handout? <laughs> this takes virtually nothing about the circumstances into account. Craster has terrorized many of these women since birth. They rarely ever see other people. They have no connection to the watch or anything or anyone south of the wall. 
It took immense courage for Gilly to do as much as she did. For Mormont to blithely assert that they should just go ahead and go even further is both heartless and brainless. <laughs> Not only that, Mormont then goes on to point out that it, actually he doesn't want Craster dead anyway. So wait, what was all that about how maybe the women should kill him? It was nothing but wind and words, empty talk to soothe his conscience. And it only gets worse. John summons his courage and delivers the thesis statement George has been driving at all chapter. My father once told me that some men are not worth having. A bannerman who is brutal or unjust dishonors his liege lord as well as himself. This is an important idea in A Song of Ice and Fire, one that extends back to book one, when Ned condemned Robert for working with J.R.'s son Jorah, and forward to the various zealots and sadists in Stannis' camp who continually undercut his cause. And this is a great example of how Ned's legacy outlasts him, the lessons he taught his children, biological and otherwise, guiding them in moments of internal conflict. Sometimes it's not worth the benefit a bad actor brings to the table. Sometimes your cause is tainted by their very presence, and I think this is one such case. A lot of this also feels like George is doing some red wedding groundwork. You know, it's not worth having the phrase in Bolton's as better than to the Stark Cully independence cause, as Rob is going to find out to his ultimate detriment in A Storm of Swords. But it's also speaking, what Ned might be speaking to is the ambiguities of Robert's Rebellion. Got Hostertelli, who burned Lord Goodbrook's village to bring Lord Goodbrook to heel. Or you've got Hostertelli turned up to 11 in the form of Tywin Lannister, who sacks King's Landing because he was, quote, late to Robert's cause and had to prove his loyalty to the new regime, which is bullshit. We'll talk about that in a storm of swords, obviously. But I think we're doing, George is seeding multiple ideas here. He's seeding foreshadowing and stuff for the Red Wedding, which is his big reveal come storm of swords. He's also seeding some ideas in John's story and his background. As we're going to talk about in A Dance with Dragons, John is going to wrestle with this idea of whether he should bring a person like the Weeper south of the wall, the Weeper who cuts the eye slits off of people is is that the guy we want to bring south of the wall, or should we just leave him to leave him to the others? John makes the decision ultimately that he's going to bring him south, but he still wrestles with it. And I think he has to. He's keeping Ned's statement about some better men are not worth having in his back of his mind as he's making these really crucial decisions come at Dance of Dragons. But really crucial decisions come here at the end of this chapter. There's no easy answer, but again, I am unimpressed by the Lord Commander's counterargument. He says that Craster is not subject to their laws, so nothing we can do. But the plain fact is that the Watch enables Craster. That's the whole point of the axe in this chapter. That's why it keeps getting brought up. The irony is that the Lord Commander rests his argument on the idea that the Night's Watch has other wars to fight. But he's the one who's taken his eye off the ball, not John. Right. I mean, the other irony, too, is that the moral trade-off that the Night's Watch makes in allowing Craster to sacrifice his sons to the wood, whatever you think that means, is because Craster's keep saves the Night's Watchman from death out in the Horan Forest. And yet the haunted forest stays fucking haunted precisely because Craster gives his sons to the others to become new others. All of those rangers that keep disappearing north of the wall, yeah, that's Craster's work. Come on, guys. Like, you're, you're making this moral argument that, yes, we have to keep this guy alive because he helps keep us safe and we're all okay because of it. But you're not. You're making it exponentially worse for the Night's Watch, for the Wildlings, for all of humanity by keeping this guy alive. It's infuriating. It's frustrating. For sure, and then Mormont immediately shifts the discussion to Mance Raider, even though he knows Mance is not the primary threat, even though he saw the dead rise, even though he himself said back in book one that he had taken his eye off the ball about this. Mormont has succumbed to mission creep and the bad advice of those around him. Same exact, same exact thing happens to Stannis after he comes north to fight the others. The Lord Commander is neglecting his duty to both Gilly and humanity as a whole, in favor of fighting the last war against the Wildlings. And not only that, but he's doing that in the worst way possible. He's striking out to attack Mance instead of falling back on the wall's defenses. It's an abdication of responsibility so total that were I Jon Snow, 
I would have difficulty considering J.R. Mormont to be a worthy moral compass after this. As I said, the old bear has a good heart as just an individual man. He cares deeply about both the Watch and John. He doesn't actively wish anyone harm. But institutionally, in terms of how he uses his power, even in the face of the apocalypse, maybe especially in the face of the apocalypse, he cannot abandon his old way of thinking, guaranteeing the failure of his great ranging even before the zombie army shows up and getting him killed when he returns to Craster's Keep. And his successor, Lord Commander Snow, will have to succeed where he failed. It's going to be a hard road that Jon Snow is going to have to follow. It's going to be a lot of corpses that are going to be left in the wake of Elsie Mormont's decisions here. And a lot of corpses in all of Westeros, potentially, too, by what by the moral trade-offs that G.R. Mormont is making. So I think about wraps us up for a depth section of this episode. Turning over to the foreshadowing groundwork, man, there's a lot of mutiny foreshadowing here in this chapter, isn't there? This whole chapter really acts as foreshadowing for the next time he returned to Craster's Keep, when the Night's Watch is in much worse shape. For example, that bear skull by the gate? Yeah, Elsie Mormont, sorry to say this, but since the bear is on your family's banner and you're constantly being referred to as the old bear... <laughs> Pretty sure that skull symbolizes your death here by the hands of your own men. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And remember that axe that Mormont gives to Craster? Well, that becomes the trigger which sends the Night's Watch mutineers into a maelstrom of murder and rape when the Night's Watch returns to Craster's Keep after the disaster on the Fist of the First Men, as Craster first threatens the Night's Watchmen with the axe before actually going for them with the axe that Mormont gave them. Very um, lovely. Symbolic. It's Chekhov's axe, and, and George puts it on the wall in this chapter and takes it down to use it in a storm of swords. <laughs> After all that bloodletting is done in a storm of swords, Samwell too, Gilly will indeed run off with her boy to escape both Craster and the others, as she threatens to do here. But it's Sam she'll run off with, on their own, not with John nor with the Watch as a whole. And I think that's a nice way of capturing how Sam is a supporting character here, just driving John's moral dilemmas. But he's a protagonist in his own right at the center of his own story in The Storm of Swords, that he has to be the one to take responsibility for Gilly, which is something I really like. I like that too. And I, and I like this idea that Sam has inculcated the lessons that of observing John, John's conduct in A Game of Thrones to him. And, you know, Sam frames it in this chapter as he knows what it's like to be afraid. He was afraid when he was under Randall's care, quotation marks. He was afraid in under Sir Alistair Thorne's care. And John was the one who was able to provide him the protection and the means of friendship and companionship, which allowed Samwell to survive A Game of Thrones on into A Clash of Kings. Samwell is going to be the character that's going to provide the protection for Gilly to get south of the wall. He's going to safeguard and shepherd her south of the wall on over to Bravos, on down to Old Town. It's a great little story. That's one of those things I'm looking forward to getting to in A Feast for Crows is Sam and Gilly's story. Agreed. One other little bit of, of uh, potential foreshadowing that left out to me in this read. Uh, the, the, little, the little scene when John is arguing with the assholes in the Night's Watch about Gilly and uh, Lark the Sisterman falls at one point and then he gets back up on one knee while making fun of John. He takes he takes a knee in front of John. And I wonder if that might be a hint at the at the crowns, crown or crowns that John will wear later on in the story. And it's, it's, if so, it's wonderful because Lark is not getting, he's, he's not going from standing to one knee like you do before a king. He's going from falling back up to one <laughs> knee. But in the process for a second, it looks like he's kneeling to John as a king. So I wonder if that's a great little subtle image on George's part. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think that it could be a subtle way of that John that George is hitting at John's future kingship. Another little kind of subtle thing I, I saw very late in doing this analysis, this chapter, is that Craster's whole idea of, of being that he's, oh, you're a bastard. Man wants to bet a woman. Seems like he ought to take her to wife. That's what I do. Well, was that 
Craster being kind of like that, uh, you know, prophetically saying that John maybe isn't a bastard and potentially the trueborn son of Rhaegar and Lyanna. I mean, at least that's the way that Game of Thrones portrayed it. I think it's, I, I tend to favor that in terms of how the books will come across too. Agreed. As we talked about before, there's that great ironic line in the first book about how John says that he can't fight Joffrey because a bastard can't cross swords with a prince when actually Joffrey is the bastard and John might be a trueborn prince. And that would be a great irony if Craster is describing actually what happened with Rhaegar and Lyanna. He did take her to wife, and John isn't a bastard at all. Final bit of foreshadowing, when Dolorous Ed says, there's always a bear. <laughs> oh, if he only knew. What a bear awaits them at the fist of the first man. And that is, of course, maybe George's great horror image in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, is that zombie bear staggering out of the snow at the fist of the first man. And you can see him building up to it probably because he takes such pride in it, but I can't blame him. It is one of the best parts of the story. I love it too. It's so much fun, horrible fun. It's 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 horrible and it's fun at the same time. It's it's a great way that we get uh, Sam's flashbacks to the Battle of the Fist of the First Men in his first chapter in A Storm of Swords. I can't wait to get to that. So I think that about wraps up for a foreshadowing groundwork portion of this episode. For our, our major discussion point, I wanted to you know broach the question I think that is on everyone's mind. Did Dywin actually have sex with three of Craster's wives? Is that what actually happened in this chapter? Of course not. More like five. You know Dywin. That boy yeah, gets man. around. It's a wooden teeth, baby. No, but in Cell seriousness, the, the question we wanted to ask is, Craster's deal with the others. What is it exactly? Where does it come from and what does it mean going forward? It's easy to take for granted after season four of Game of Thrones seemed to show us directly what's happening, but that doesn't line up 100% with the books. There are extra details that were in the books that didn't make it into the show. And there's an overall ambiguity that, there that I think is, allows us to talk about what this portends for the story and how George writes in general. Exactly. And I think when we're talking about Craster, we'll, we have to recognize that we might not ever f truly find the full extent of his relationship to the others. Now, there's a possibility that Sam and Gilly's conversations come the winds of winter might pertain to some of that more and might reveal more, but it's not likely we're going to discover everything. So what was the deal that the others and Craster had? And I'm going to pose a theory. And it's a wild one, so you know it's not also not precisely based on things we learn in A Song of Ice and Fire. But spoilers for Fever Dreams, skip ahead about two minutes or so if you don't want to be spoiled about George's 1982 Fever novel, which we are doing a Patreon-only podcast on. Come join us on Patreon and listen to those episodes. They're really cool. So, so spoilers in three, two, one. In Fever Dream, the vampire Damon Julian uses a human thrall by the name of Sourbelly Tipton to do all the shit work at, uh, all, do all the shit work for him, as well as acquire new human victims for Damon and his crew to satiate their red thirst. And as we find out, the reason Sourbelly is in Damon's employ and he does this is because Damon Julian has promised that he will make Sourbelly one of our kind. He will transform Sourbelly into a vampire blessed with immortality. However, this is bullshit as Damon has no such power to turn a human into a vampire as Joshua Gurks talks about but he keeps leading but but Damon keeps leading Sarah Billy on and on and on until faithfully stating at the end of Fever Dream that I'm afraid I have some sad news for you Billy I can't change you did you really think a creature like you could become one of us <laughs> it's so good it's, it's a great kind of creeping awesome reveal at the end of Fever Dream so my theory was there this idea that if Craster kept faith with the others, that they would make him an other, an immortal. They're, they're changing his sons. Couldn't they change Craster too, make him an immortal other? Something that's always given me pause about Craster is that Mormont offers Craster the protection of coming south of the wall. Mance Raider also offers Craster the protection of joining the Wildling Band at the Frostfangs. This seems like a, these both seem like more sure things than continuously producing sons and giving livestock to the others. And yet, 
Craster rejects this, stating that the gods protect him and he doesn't want to be a slave and serve tables for the Night's Watch. The irony here, of course, that we talked about in the episode is that Craster is doing precisely that with providing the others his livestock and sons. He's serving table for the others, in other words. So I wonder if the others, who, as we've talked about in our Fever Dream Patreon episodes, resemble Damon Julian and his nihilistic quest to extinguish life for no other purpose than extinguishing life and death itself, have promised Craster that he will become like one of them. Again, this theory isn't precisely based on what we find out about Craster in A Song of Ice and Fire, and especially in this chapter. And it's entirely possible that Craster has self-deluded himself into thinking that if he keeps giving his sons and food up to the others, that they'll just keep on protecting him. So that's just a, again, it's a kind of a more water theory. I understand that it might not be what George might be going for, but I like the idea that there's something else at work with why Craster has this arrangement with the others because it ultimately doesn't make sense. He's going to run out of livestock. He's going to run out of sons eventually at some point. And he's going to die at some point too. And so why does he keep doing this thing of giving his sons, giving himself over to the others, allying himself with the others? It doesn't make sense. Maybe it makes sense more in the context of that theory. I like that theory a lot. It fits with how Craster seems to worship the others, referring to them as gods. Maybe he thinks he's got some reward coming in the same way Aaron Dampere thinks the drowned god owes him for his worship. And it fits the overall kind of motif we see in the Song of Ice and Fire of, of people willing to surrender their souls to gain immortality or transcendence. You see that with Melisandre. You see that with Euron. You see that a lot in the history of the Valerians and the Targaryens. But of course, it's, it's not just sons. Craster is also offering up sheep and pigs to the others, it seems. Is that for food? Are the others using them for hideous experiments like Kyburn? Are they just feeding their, mm. their, their demonic horses with it? Who knows? Regardless... <laughs> The way Gilly describes it as like going from sheep to pigs to sons, it makes it sound like an escalation, as if the others are constantly turning up the heat, so to speak, on Craster. So where where does this deal come from? Because it's not like Craster woke up one day and he thought, you know what would be a great idea? Selling my sons out to the ice demons. <laughs> where does it come from? Was this perhaps widespread practice at some point? There's a theory that the wildlings ancestors were abandoned on the wrong side of the wall the last time the others were fall because they were practicing this. They were sacrificing to the others. You know, the wildlings refuse to name their kids young. They have superstitions around grayscale. I feel like there's definitely something going on with the wildlings and kids. They're neighbors with the heart of ice. And remember, there are no kids in the shy, the heart of fire. But it makes sense that there would be a political split as time went on between those like Craster that keep the old ways and those who join the kings beyond the wall. The latter are trying to get south. The former are just fine where they are, at least for the moment. Craster is staying here. He says his roots, you know, sink in deep. He's made this deal and he's sticking with it. The numbers of people, of wildlings who think this way, however, seem to have dwindled during the other's long dormancy to the point where it seems like only Craster is keeping this deal up. So like the Old Way Ironborn or the Giscari Masters, this isn't so much an unbroken tradition as one recently revived for purposes of exploitation and fear. The association of the others with gods, put together with the association of the others with the woods... Suggests that these deals get worked out in weirwood groves, perhaps? You know, the others are often associated with the wood coming out of the trees, so to speak. So I picture, like, Craster, like, going before a weirwood and, and making this first deal uh, with the others. It's like a nightmarish version of the pact on the Isle of Faces, right? It's like the dark, terrible version of that. Yeah, I think the the counter parallels between what happened in the Isle of Faces and what's happening with Craster are, are strong. I think you bring up a lot of interesting data points that... I think you can wrap this, you can wrap the idea that Craster is working with the others as a tribute slash resumption of the old way, so to speak, for the wildlings in North of the Wall. I think that's that's very uh, likely, I think, when we're, we're talking about Craster, because I think um, ultimately we're, we're just left with a bunch of blanks that we have to fill in and just, and we're looking at 
context clues that George is providing that might point one way, might point the other way. But I have a question for you is that what does that mean for the relationship between humans and others going forward? What does it mean for Craster and his wives and everyone else going forward in the story? So even if the others can be trusted to keep the deal with Craster personally, this is at most a deal that works for a single generation, right? At mm-hmm. which point Craster's surviving daughters are left to the tender mercies of the White Walkers unless they can come up with another man to replace him, another sperm donor. All of which is to say that this deal is not a sustainable model for warding off the Long Night. I've heard it framed that way sometimes when people discuss the series that, hey, look, the others made this deal with Craster so they can be trusted. You can make a pact with them. And I'm like, really? The, the deal that turns us into farm animals? I don't think so. Even if you swallow the idea of sacrificing your infant sons, all it does is buy time. So ultimately, Craster is not a model. He's a cautionary tale. Don't make a deal with the devil because the devil can't be trusted and he will always come for your soul in the end. It's the question we come to a lot of times in A Song of Ice and Fire. If you give up your humanity to survive, what have you gained? It's that interplay between the individual lives and the larger picture we were talking about. And you can make the case that, oh, it's, you can sacrifice these individuals because the big picture is more important. But what if in the process you lose your heart and soul? You lose what you're defending. You lose what you're fighting for in the big picture. This is what Davos will say in A Storm of Swords, that, that one life is actually worth everything against the world. I think you can see a similar themes that work in Craster's Keep. Unfortunately, Stannis and Melisandre are not taking notes on this chapter. So I wonder if Stannis and Melisandre and Shireen is like the ultimate endpoint of this theme, that this idea that it's worth it to sacrifice kids to save the Long Night. Because you can see George arguing in this chapter that eh, even though Stannis is not a monster like Craster, that's still not the model you want to follow. I absolutely agree. I think that's a, that's a wonderful way to wrap it all up and, and bring it full circle to to Stannis, which is what this podcast is all about. Ultimately. <laughs> exactly. But, 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 but I, think you, I think you're right, though, is that Stannis and Melisandre make this, this deal, so to speak, in, in The Wind's Winter or A Dream of Spring, that the only way to stop the long night is to burn children, to burn Stannis's beloved child and daughter, Shireen. And I don't think it's going to result in anything but horror and sadness and tragedy for all the, the people involved in the sacrifice of Shireen. It's what happens with Craster and his wives, especially, and their sons in this chapter and this chapter and proceedingly preceding this and on into a storm of swords. It only brings darkness ultimately. It only, you know, kills the humanity away from from the people involved. And that's um that I think that's the the cautionary tale that George is imparting in this. Don't make deals with the devil, don't burn children, don't sacrifice your children to the others, and you have to fight against darkness and the devil and evil and Satan. And that's ultimately what I'm all about. And if you want to learn more, come talk to me about Christianity at some point. So <laughs> I knew he'd get there, folks. I'm so proud. So I think that about wraps up for this episode on A Clash of Kings, John 3. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I really did. As always, thank you so much for listening. And thank you for our patrons for supporting us. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Follow us on Twitter at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brandon Beefish on Twitter, Brandon Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Lady Madeline Rivers, just a CR of the Trident, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, 
Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim the Knight who was guided by voices, Sir Courtenay, what did the five fingers say to the face Penrose, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mar Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, and Sir Michael Mertens. Thank you so much to our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you guys, gals, so very much. So, join us next week for Clash Kings Theon 2 as Theon meets the girl of his dreams. <laughs> Only to find out far, far too late that A, she's his sister, B, she's the actual heir to House Greyjoy, and C, Theon is a fucking chump. Ah, uh, Theon is a fucking chump, the great theme of all Theon chapters, and <laughs> rarely more so than in Theon 2. This is this an exquisite joke of a chapter, I can't wait. It's going to be so much fun. And as we said at the beginning of this episode, this episode will be a live stream episode, so you could come laugh at us with Theon Greyjoy at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on January 13th, 2020 on our YouTube page. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our patrons for supporting us. And we will see you guys next week.